Welcome to episode 171 of the Cognicast, a podcast about software and the people who make it. Our host this week, Robert Randolph, talks with Howard Lewis Shipp about his career, journey to closure, and the art of video games. But before we begin, I would like to remind everyone that we are hiring. Check out Cognitech.com slash careers.html or reach us at jobs at Cognitech.com. And now, Robert and Howard. Hello, Howard. How are you doing today? I am doing great. It's awesome to be on the Cognicast. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Let's just dive in the hard way, the way that everybody likes to start things with the awkward question of describe yourself. Actually, one thing I prepared was the art question. Oh, yeah. Let's do that. Okay, so I've been listening to Cognitech, the Cognitast, over time, and there's always the art question. Name some piece of art that has is important to you or, or, or is worth sharing. And whenever I've heard that on the Cognicast, I was like, the piece of art I would like to talk about is actually a game, a computer game. Mm-hmm. It came out a few years ago, and it's called Gora Goa. And it is this crazy piece of work by this lone developer, and it's a puzzle game. And it's all done with hand-drawn art and hand-drawn animation. And it's basically the story about a boy who sees this crazy mystical creature out his window. This is the Gora Goa. And ends up spending his life trying to make offerings to it. So all the puzzles end up with kind of an offering in a bowl that he brings to like a shrine to give to the, the creature. And this process spans his entire life. Now, the game visually is amazing. Just the detail of the artwork, and just how beautifully designed and varied the puzzles are. The puzzles are all based on the idea that the screen is broken up into quadrants, and you can click and drag the quadrants around. So you might reorder the pieces of paper so that you can walk from one part of the screen to another. Or, for instance, early on, you can walk into a closet, and when you do, you can drag that piece of paper and replace it with another outline of the closet that's in a different location. And now you walk out and you're on a roof that previously you could only see out a window. I may not be explaining it that well, but that design was so innovative and so approachable. And yet the story is really fascinating because I'm not a religious person or I wouldn't describe myself as spiritual, but the character here is is very spiritual. He dedicates himself to, to this mystical creature and, and these offerings and it's sort of like being like spiritual adjacent. Like you get a kind of vibe for how your worldview would look just by playing the game and, and, and seeing how all these things happen. And, and if that's not art, I don't have a good definition of what it is. So when you have this discussion, our game's art, the first thing I'd point to is this game, Goragoa. <laughs> I just looked it up too. It's G-O-R-O-G-O-A. It's Goragora, yep. like you said. So there we go. That's my art thing. Yeah. No, that's the Iron Giant. <laughs> I have never seen that. You've never seen The Iron Giant? Never seen it. Oh my God, it's maybe the best traditionally animated movie ever made. And it's not got like musicals or any unnecessary treacle in it. It is solid story and it's stirring and it's great. And you can watch it with your kids. You can watch it alone. Go see The Iron Giant. I'll watch it. I keep being told to watch it. I'll watch it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. How did you get into software development, programming, technical things in general? Like, What led you up to the point where you got your first professional work doing that? Well, let me see. I am turned into the super graybeard. I still think of myself as the young kid, which is getting harder and harder to justify. I've had a fun course working for uh, Stratus Computer way back at the dawn of things, and then for a bunch of consulting companies, and then on my own for a while, and then most recently Walmart, and now I'm here with Cognitech. So I did a lot of Java back towards the beginning of things and had a lot of fun getting into open source kind of early and built a pretty successful web framework called Tapestry. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of hit my limit on Java and was like, I want to get into Clojure. And one of my clients was like, yeah, we're doing Clojure. Why don't you come work for us? So I worked for a company called Aviso in Ireland for a while. They did a uh, credit card switch in Clojure and was really successful. From there, ended up falling into Walmart for a bit. And as I said, now I'm here. The software thing, it sounds very self-aggrandizing, <laughs> like I was born to do it. More specifically, I was born not to do anything else but. 
Okay. So when I was like 13, I was teaching myself to program. This is back back in the age of like Apple IIs and the pet computer and TRS-80. I, of course, got something bizarre called a Challenger 1P, but it was a single board 6502 with a decent keyboard. Taught myself to program, taught myself basic and 6502 assembly, eventually went on to like an Atari and went to school. And I was like the only person I knew who went into school with the major and stayed all the way through and left in the same major. And that was computer science at WPI, Worcester Polytechnic Institute. I did their co-op program. Mm-hmm. which was a lot of fun. I took off a half a year of school and went to work for a company. And this was Stratus Computer. And possibly some of the code I wrote then is still in production. It's hard to say. But that was a lot of fun and really set me up. Once I got back from that co-op program and writing real code, I really started not having a lot of patience with being in school. So I finished up, graduated, and then went right back to Stratus Computer. Which is kind of funny because my academic advisor told me that only losers did the co-op program. Hopefully, that's not the case. (laughs) You got to prove somebody wrong eventually. There's always going to be somebody who's going to say that only so-and-so does this. So you actually, you mentioned the the Challenger 1P, which is an interesting thing. I'm not sure a lot of people will be familiar with. You probably will be if you're listening to this and you Google it. Do you remember much, much about that system? Yeah, it was really weird. I used to write text adventures on it. And given that it had basically like a 20 by maybe 15 character display, that that took a lot of doing to write a text adventure that would fit in eight kilobytes of RAM along with basic. Yeah, it was, um, I had a habit that I think continues to this day of always choosing the wrong horse in any technology, (laughs) any technological race. I'm hoping I'm bringing that to a close now that I'm in the closure world. But yes, I wish I had gotten an Apple at that point, but I eventually ended up with an Atari 800, which was actually a pretty, pretty nice machine to see me through those years. Yeah, cool. How did you end up in the Java world? I was actually doing Objective-C before Java, which is pretty rare. At Stratus Computer, we had a customer support system and we were rewriting it to make it global and do a bunch of things. And we wanted to have a nice UI for it, nicer than we could do using VT100 and something akin to N-curses. And somehow, and I don't remember whose decision this was, we ended up stumbling into the world of Apple. And this is right when web objects first came out, but we ended up building a fat client right on top of AppKit in Objective-C back when you had to remember like your retain and release cycles and all that stuff. So yeah, I was programming there and we had some consultants come in from a company called Advis. This is all in Boston. And I ended up hanging out with the consultants and they were like, Howard, why aren't you a consultant with us? And I didn't have an answer. So I did that and broke into the world there. And then just as we're doing that, we shifted from being an Objective-C Apple next step shop into being Java. And I remember being quite dismayed at looking at what Java looked like after getting used to Objective-C. It just felt so Baroque in comparison. But that was what I did for a couple of years. And we were doing web-based projects. So early stuff with Java servlets. And that's where the seeds of what became Tapestry came about. Yeah, I'm actually not that familiar with Tapestry. Can you tell me, tell me more about how that started, the problems that you were looking to solve with that? Yeah. Again, this is like at the beginning of time. This is like in early 2000, maybe. We had a lot of people were trying to figure out how you describe and build a project that was on the web. And I had had some exposure to web objects, which was Apple's solution to this, which was super heavy about like having a huge amount of state on the server and completely indecipherable URLs. But at the same time, you had that ability to just swap down a component and then nest them and build them and build a whole app out of this stuff. And I wanted that flow. And I remember I was stuck on the green line in Boston on my way to work in the summer and it was hot and I was in the back of the train and I had no air conditioning and I just needed to be anywhere but there. So I went off in my head and started envisioning what a component-based web framework in Java might look like. And that eventually turned into like the earlier versions of Tapestry. So we were using this on projects at work at that time. And then eventually I moved to other companies and was using struts. And that didn't take so well for me. So I ended up doing some consulting where I got to use Tapestry as a consultant. I did that for quite some time and was able to build some apps, like one version of the serverside.com. We built that in Tapestry. 
Then I worked for a couple of other clients and got work training people in tapestry, writing extensions to tapestry. It was a lot of fun. I learned a huge amount at the time. Was there a point when you were working on tapestry where you felt like, oh my gosh, this is really starting to take off. This is really valuable. There was definitely a point where, yeah, I had like visions like, oh, we're going to have like tapestry themed software conferences to the point of like, oh, what music will I have when I take the stage? Oh, this will be awesome. But it never quite went that far. And it went as far as one person really working on it could go. And it would have been nice had it been more of a group project from the get-go and maybe had like, like a consulting company behind it. I needed more than just to be writing the code. I needed to be building projects in the code all the time and mm-hmm. working with other people trying to use it to, to find those rough edges and smooth them out. The core technology in Tapestry, I'm still really proud of. And it did a lot of really cool things, and it inspired a lot of stuff. There was explicitly a lot of things in Java server faces, which was concurrent with Tapestry, that I was even sitting in meetings where they were like, how did you do such a thing? Could we adapt this idea to Java server faces? One of the really great feedback I got was from one of my clients who said, yeah, we did stress tests on our system, and we drove it all to the breaking point. And then after we backed down, the only piece of the stack that still was working correctly was Tapestry. All of the other database this and network that, all those things would fall over and not recover. And part of that was because I was doing a lot of things that you see in Clojure today. You know, it was like very carefully encapsulated mutation. And that was probably one of the main things was keeping mutation down to a very carefully controlled bit. Were there any other companies or projects that you weren't involved in? that you saw using Tapestry? Oh, yeah. I mean, there were ones that I came in, I'd consult with them and get them going. And there were people where I came in, not just to do training, but to do work. So, oh, man, this is now for me kind of getting to be ancient history. But as I mentioned earlier, one of my early Tapestry clients eventually went over to Clojure, but their project in Tapestry was really successful. And this was a, it was all in the financial world. So it was for Western Union to make it easy for shops all over like the UK to more easily deal with Western Union to wire money. And and their typical thing was like having like immigrant workers who want to send money home to the Far East Mm -hmm. and to get like an official Western Union terminal in there would require more money and more training. And and what Aviso did was build a really nice app that allowed people to get the job done. So that was one example. There was a publishing company that I had a lot of interaction with called Wyden, and they were in Madison, Wisconsin. And yeah, they built a, a whole system that started being about production pipeline for print, advertising, catalogs, that kind of thing, and eventually just totally pivoted to online. And so they had a very involved system built in Java and Tapestry and a particular client-side framework that I'm trying to remember which one it was, but they had a big investment in in Tapestry and I think they're still using it. I've kind of lost track of all this stuff because again, I've been totally in the closure world now since at least 2012. Mm -hmm. So that's over 10 years. You wrote a book about Tapestry. Yeah. What was that like? What was your process? It's always interesting to me, like how people go about writing a technical book. Like, how did that start for you? I'm trying to remember how I got on it. It just seemed like I was giving a presentation about Tapestry at a local Java users group meeting. And I got approached by one of the regular members of the the group, someone that I I knew. And and because I'm bad with names and because it's literally been 15 or 16 years I can't remember who it is, which is embarrassing. And he was representing A-Press. And he said, I, I think you should write a book about tapestry for A-Press. And, and that was cool. And I got back home. And as I was thinking about this, I literally got an email at the same time from Manning saying, maybe you'd like to do a, a book with us. And I don't know how I got to that position that I had like two competing offers within a few hours of each other, but it worked great. And I thought about it for a while. And I thought that Manning was going to be able to give me more assistance in in writing the book, more Mm -hmm. editing assistance and so forth. And they did. In fact, I worked with Jackie, who's gone on to work with the Pragmatic Programmers, and she's like editor for a lot of their books. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, so writing the book was cool. I took time off from work. I took a sabbatical. I was working for a company called WebCT at the time. And I just said, I need to take a few months off. And I sat down and just wrote and tried to capture my thinking about how tapestry worked and how you could present it a little bit at a time, chapter by chapter. And I guess it worked. They sold a reasonable number of copies. It wasn't like it wasn't like the book on rails or something that was a runaway success, but it made everybody some decent money. And at the very least, it bought my wife a really nice ski jacket. <laughs> Tell me about that ski jacket. Do you remember <laughs> much about it? It was nice. It was a Rosy, Rosy Null and bright red, very warm. We used like some of the money from like the first royalty check to, to pay for that. That's awesome. A lot of people <laughs> uh, work on books and they can't, they can't even say that much. I don't remember how much I, it ended up paying. Obviously, it was nowhere near how much I lost in wages taking, I think it was four or five months off to work on the book. But it was a great experience that I'm not too eager to to do again. It was pretty hard. And of course, now I'm filled with, oh, there are so many things I could have done better in the book. Has there been any inklings that you've got, like little little itches of like, maybe I want to write a book about this thing now? I haven't really had that itch. If I had the really big idea, maybe I would, but it is a big time investment. And now it's even harder to do because I've got kids at home. At the time I was newly married and total freedom. It wasn't even in pandemic. I mean, it was like real life was pretty easy. So I was able to really focus on writing the book and working on it every day and building the examples and dealing with the, the process, which was pretty arduous. The pragmatic programmers, they have a good system for writing a book. Mm -hmm. Manning didn't have it. It was basically send us your Word document and we'll format it. But that being said, yeah, Tapestry was something, it was big. It was uniquely mine. I'd adapted good ideas from all over and people provided really good ideas, but all of it was right at my fingertips and it was something that was really interesting to a lot of people. I mean, in theory, maybe I could do something about GraphQL and Lacinia, but I just just don't feel the, the fever to do that. That's... That's understandable. After Java, there was a point, from what I understand, you discovered Clojure, right? Oh, yeah. That was fun. So I had been talking about Java and testing and tapestry and a few other things at a bunch of conferences, including the No Fluff Just Stuff series. Mm -hmm. And who else was on that series? Stu Halloway and Justin and pretty much all, all the regular people. And so I just, that was so lucky. I wish... I could just give that to everybody who wants to to move up in the in the software world to be with that kind of crazy pirate crew. So the deal with No Fluff Just Stuff is they would fly everybody to one location. I was flying in at that time from Boston or eventually from Oregon, where I live now. And people were flying in from all over the country, from Raleigh, from Chicago. They'd come to a hotel at some nondescript location in various cities around the country. And then you'd give talks all day Saturday and Sunday. And so this was an opportunity to meet people, both the other speakers and also the people who were attending the conferences. And so, you know, I got to know Stu. We used to play board games and card games Friday and Saturday nights and stuff like that. And one year, I actually flew back to Boston for one of these conferences. And Stu was there kind of early. And we ended up getting dinner together. And across the table from me, he just looked at me and said, Howard, this is maybe in 2008. Howard, he says, you need to learn two things. You need to learn Clojure, and you need to learn Git. And he was right about both of them. And it was funny because I looked at Clojure briefly, like I'd seen it pop up on some Twitter feed or something like that. I looked at it, and my first reaction, just looking at the first page of what the homepage looked like in 2008 was, why would you want to put Lisp syntax on Java? You know, I totally missed what it was all about, and it was very easy to miss what it was mm -hmm. all about then. But because Stu said it, I took it to heart and I went home and started downloading it and learning how to write code in it. I think I wrote a program to score random deals of a cribbage deck. How do you identify all the different ways you can score points in cribbage? And that was like the first thing I wrote. And of course, then the second thing I wrote was a web framework, which I then abandoned. <laughs> what was the big value proposition that you saw like the main one, I think you already mentioned that reducing state mutability was a thing that you had in tapestry. I would assume that you latched onto that. Was was that the big thing for you? Or was there something else where it just immediately made you think, oh my gosh, this is for me. This is what I want to do. 
Well, certainly early on, you get trapped by the mirage of like software transactional memory. That was like a big thing early on. We don't really care about that anymore. It's still there. I almost never see a use for it. It took time. I basically was moving on the momentum of what Stu said. And it was kind of fun, as it's always fun to learn a new programming language and see all the patterns. But I eventually really started grokking the just the conciseness that the language hits the sweet spot of being very concise, but still very readable. Like you can come all over around that point, but to get that point just right, it's something that only Clojure really has of all the languages I've worked in. Then as I learned how to use the REPL correctly, which took a bit longer, especially in the early days, predating in REPL and a lot of the other tech that we just expect now. But as I learned to use the REPL effectively, that sort of shifted it for me. It went from, I write code that I give to a computer and it does something. It became more like, I'm in this conversation with a computer. I'm in this like weird high level, low level conversation and we're negotiating and I'm exploring as I work in a way that I had not had working in Objective-C or Java or PL1 or any of the other languages I played with. And that was a big deal to have that. Like in Tapestry, one of the things I worked in is I did a lot of class loader magic so that you could save your Java source files and like the IDE would compile them. But then Tapestry at runtime in development mode would like notice the class files had changed and it would reload everything. And of course, it did all this crazy bytecode manipulation on your classes to turn them into components. So that was pretty cool. And coming to Clojure was the first time I'd had that doing not tapestry, just having that that cycle of I can make changes and keep rolling and never interrupting your flow, never hitting the build button and then going for some tea or coffee or whatever you're into. That was new and really, really addictive. To pull back a bit, you just mentioned PL1. You were using that when you were with Stratus originally? Yeah. Yeah, What was that like? I actually don't know anything about that language. It's another on the branch, on the Algol branch of procedural languages it was designed to be like the one true language of its age. It was used to implement Multics, which was like a multi-user operating system from the 60s, I think. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Unix, the name Unix is a play on Multics. So mm-hmm. Multics is long forgotten, but it still lives on <laughs> as, as a couple of young guys were just sort of giving the finger to the giant organization that wouldn't let them use their big computers. It was a decent language for getting things done. But it was a procedural language. I can't really even think well of how to do that anymore. Like, kind of like I'm building a lot of command line tools for my own benefit. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the same thing. You have a start point, you do something, and you're done. Mm-hmm. But I was doing object-oriented for so long that I kind of lost track of how to build something procedurally. Stratus was fun. PL1 was, was a clunky but effective language. And it looked kind of like C, maybe a little higher level. A lot of effort spent on precisely laying out the bit structure of, of structures was missing a lot of things that you're kind of used to, like exceptions. I don't know that I could write a line of it now. It's been long enough. Was there anything from PO1 that you felt was that influenced your career as you went along? Or was that just like, this is my first stepping stone. This is where I cut my teeth and then I just forgot about it. It wasn't PL1 itself, but I came into a big existing code base and that was had lots of bugs. This is again that customer support system. So I spent a lot of time writing tests, not just for new code, but I had to like rewrite existing code and write tests and write test harnesses and a lot of work along those lines. Back before I knew the term refactoring, our team used the term Howardizing. For when someone goes in and rips up some code and changes it so that no one can tell what exactly changed. And of course, at this point, we would do code reviews by printing out listings on this stuff called paper using this <laughs> line printer thing. And we'd all gather in a room. It was never productive back then. But yeah, making big changes when you have no real way to compare the differences is extra painful. Yeah, that doesn't uh, sound but, fun. <laughs> no, but the thing that went forward was the idea that I had, even then as sort of young and fairly fresh out of school, of, yeah, you refine your code and you change your code so that you can test it. And then you actually test it and you find your faults and you will find problems in code you already trust if you actually test it. That kind Mm -hmm. of went with me. The other thing that stayed with me, 
was we built a lot of little servers and they all had kind of the same cycle. Scan this directory. If a file appears there, read it, process it, delete it. So I wrote that code once and then I had to write a similar one. And I went to my boss. It's like, I could refactor this out to a library. It'll take me like a week to make it really right. Or I could just copy and paste. And what do you think? And he's like, copy and paste. And then I went back to school for like six months and came back that summer and found out that they had rubber stamped that code several times. They all had bugs. I had to spend a lot of time chasing down the exact same bug and the exact same rubber stamp copy of the code. And that really drilled the don't repeat yourself into me almost to a fault, almost certainly to a fault. I am like so against don't repeat yourself that I might be too far on the other extreme. (laughs) Yeah. I think a lot of people have that experience, especially early on when you catch somebody using your, your code that you've written like that. Fast forwarding back to closure. Okay. I think I recall that you managed to use closure on the same for in the same consulting gig that you were doing the Java work. Is that correct? No, I must not have explained that very well. I had a client that was into tapestry, and, and this was the company right. Aviso that had built the code for Western Union. Mm-hmm. And I was very pumped up about Clojure and started blogging about Clojure. And these people picked it up and were like, well, Howard's excited about it. There must be something here. And they looked at it and they got excited about it. And they were like, wow, we could actually compete with some of these big banks at building a credit card switch which is basically a piece of software that fits between multiple financial networks. So when you run your credit card, you know, it comes from the pad that you're in and it talks to your bank, your bank talks to a switch and talks to it in its proprietary binary format. Then the switch talks to the other side where mm-hmm. the money's coming from in their proprietary format. And then it records all this stuff and makes sure everyone gets all the acknowledgements and confirmations they need. And so that's a pretty big deal, especially cranking through all these difficult binary formats. And they were like, we can do this in Clojure. We can do it in Clojure better than we can do it in other languages. The performance characteristics of Clojure are good enough for the rate at which these requests come through the system. And they liked the idea that they were hiring, at the time at least, mostly kids kind of fresh out of school. This was in Ireland, but fresh out of technical colleges. And they would train them up on Clojure and let them loose. So that was, I thought, a big win for them. Did you go straight from there to your first closure job, like your first full-time closure job, or were there other things interposed in between that experience and your full transition over to closure? I literally went from talking to my local friends saying, I am so bored of doing Java, even doing tapestry. I'm just so bored of it. And I want to switch over to closure and I don't know how to do this to literally a few weeks later, the phone ringing and the guys from Aviso saying, Hey, Howard, do you want to come do closure with us? And I was like, okay. (laughs) And then I show up on my very first day of doing actual real closure development. And what they said is, oh, Howard, get your laptop going and get the source code. We've got a performance problem in this sort of central spine of the application. And we're wondering if you could fix that. And and I was able to, which was really nice. (laughs) So this was how many years ago? This would have been back around either 2011 or 2012. So there was the ecosystem wasn't as maybe cohesive back then. Was there any sort of shock just jumping to a new code base enclosure where you just like, I have not seen people work this way before? Yeah, I think everyone was sort of figuring it out at the time. I think people were mostly using IntelliJ using the very early plugin that supported closure for it. Maybe I'm trying to remember what people were using or if they were using Eclipse again. This is over 10 years ago at this point, or about 10 years ago. I remember my personal problem was I had so much trouble getting a good environment going. So I started using the early Clojure plugin for IntelliJ, and that was really unsatisfying. And then I was like, okay, this is my chance to really learn Emacs. After all this time, I'm really going to learn Emacs. And for the third or fourth or fifth time, I crashed on those broken, (laughs) jagged rocks of Emacs, and it didn't take. And I really was like really bummed. And then out of the blue, I get an email from a guy who writes cursive, Colin. I get Mm -hmm. an email from Colin saying, hey, I've been working on this plugin for IntelliJ to do closure development. You want to be, give it a try. And I was like, yeah, because I like wasn't sure where I was going. I tried Sublime. I tried Emacs. I tried the earlier version of IntelliJ. I tried Eclipse. Nothing was really working for me. And then I 
fired up cursive. And even though it was early, it was so far ahead of all these others. As I remember, it was something along the lines of he sent me an email to the effect of, oh, I'm thinking about typing this into beta soon. And I think I blogged about it and shouldn't have because it was too early. And he saw that and was like, okay, I guess I have to throw the switch and let other people know about this. That so was kind of patient zero for cursive. Do you still use cursive? I still use cursive. I kind of thought with my transition out of Walmart and to Cognitech that it might be another chance to try to switch to a different environment. And I kind of got sucked right back into cursive. It's just in my fingers at this point. And I have a Ergodox EZ split ergonomic keyboard where I've reprogrammed everything. So all the stuff that's like several key sequences in IntelliJ to normal keyboard is just in my fingertips as a simple chord on this keyboard. And when I go back to a normal keyboard, I'm like not functional. I can't get anything to happen. Have you gotten deep into the mechanical keyboard world, writing your own firmware and things like that, or you just buy it and go and program it with what comes on the hardware? Well, I can't remember. It was how I got into it exactly. I think I saw someone else's mechanical keyboard and was talking to him about it. And at the time, I had always had this knot in between my shoulders. I got these like big, broad shoulders and everyone thinks I'm like a linebacker from high school gone to seed, even though that was not my path. <laughs> and I always had this knot in between my shoulder blades. And from talking to him, I found out that is most likely because I was sort of crowding myself around to fit my hands to a normal keyboard. Yeah. So I did some research and I went on like Kickstarter or Backer Kit or whatever it was at the time. And I got a, I think it was called the Ergodox at that time. It was a build-it-yourself kit and you had to solder all of the back, all of the switches onto the PCB board. And then it came in like this Lucite case. And I got the really loud clicky keys. Yeah. And I had it for like a few weeks. And this was early in my days at Walmart. And we end up going to Walmart's home base in um, Bentonville. So we end up flying to Bentonville. The whole team flies into Bentonville to go check out Walmart HQ. And we're in a hotel. And at night... I actually had brought this in a soldering iron and I'm in the hotel room soldering the thing together at night. And so I used this for a while and it had a horrible design flaw. It was fine as a keyboard and it was kind of cool getting used to it. But it had a PCB mounted connector for like the USB that powered it and did everything. Yeah. And yeah, torqued that a little bit and the solder broke and then it was useless. And I ended up giving up on it. So then I switched over to Ergodox EZ, which is a different company that really treats it like a product. So it gets built in somewhere in the Far East and shipped and has like a really good box opening experience. I have two of these. I have my original one at home and then I bought a Glow for work. Mm -hmm. At one point I did work on like the firmware thing and I actually had a closure script program that I would use Lumo to write from that a C program that would then be built using make files and this firmware to generate what I wanted onto the keyboard. And that was just insane. And there's a online configurator for mm -hmm. Ergodox EZ that I use that's so far ahead of that and so much easier and gives better results and doesn't crash. So I'm not entranced with mechanical keyboards. Like I see all this crazy stuff about people have like giant collections of different keycaps and different switches and they change them around and do all this stuff. No, no, it's just, I just like not having that knot in the center of my back. And now I like having this keyboard that I've customized and, and formed into my personalized tool, which drives my wife insane. Cause she like, if she ever has to borrow my computer at home with that keyboard, she doesn't even know where anything is. None of it's labeled. I have to remind her she can use the keyboard on the laptop. It's open. I, I totally understand. I have I have a split, which I'm showing uh, on video. <laughs> I actually have three things. I have a separate number pad. I have custom firmware on here. I use a different keyboard layout so nobody can type on my thing. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even I can't even type on my own laptop keyboard unless I switch things around. So I understand. Same reason. Like my shoulders were hurting way too mm -hmm. much, and I had to find I had to find a way to do it. And I ended up on basically the same solution. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice having this very customized tool. Yeah. It's something I'm always envious about, like other things. Like my landlord and neighbor 
from a few years back was a carpenter, pretty high-end carpenter. And yeah, he had very specific Japanese-style saw that he used. It had a grip that was perfect for his hands, you know? He was very specific about how he worked. When he came to our house to fix stuff, he always had two cordless drills, one to drill and one to drive. He wasn't like me. He wasn't going to be like dealing with the check and swapping things in and out. He didn't have time for that. That was his job. I really appreciated that kind of thing. So I kind of like the idea that you can sometimes build tools that are very custom to you. And I've Mm -hmm. been building command line tools even since I started here at Cognitech. It's the same thing. The things I'm doing all the time, I'm getting down to just a couple of things I can type. Are you writing most of your command line tools in Bash or are you using Babashka? Or what is your, your tool set that you reach for when you write your command line programs? At Walmart, I wrote a bunch of these things and I used Joker. And the Joker predates Babashka and was also written by Roman, who was also on our team at Walmart. Mm-hmm. So we use Joker for a lot of our infrastructure and to smooth out all the rough edges of the various systems we had to hit. Since I was starting again from scratch when I moved here, I started working with Babashka. I wanted to learn how to use it. And it's really been really nice. So I've built a tool they call it Flow for workflow. And it just has all kinds of random subcommands for doing all the work I want. Mm-hmm. I do not do Bash. I am bad at Bash. Bash irritates me. I don't have any confidence in Bash. I want to just do this stuff in Clojure. Being able to write literally the real Clojure that I would write and have it execute instantly, that is so cool. As in, like, I time these things. I'm like, how is it running all of this code and its elapsed time is like 0.04 seconds? That is great. That's just what you want. And there was a bit of a debate about, well, couldn't you be doing this in Clojure? The startup time can't be that big. Mm, yes, it can. And waiting three or four seconds for command to execute is enough to break me a little bit out of flow as opposed to it running as soon as I hit the enter key, as mm-hmm. far as my limited human perceptions can, can tell. What's your favorite tool that you've written that you use frequently or that solved a problem that saved you a ridiculous amount of time or anything along those lines? Well, at Walmart, you know, a big part of what we were doing was post-transaction customer history. And a big part of that was talking to other systems and getting details like your online orders. But the data format there was giant. Like you'd ask for details about an order and you would literally get back 25 kilobytes or more of JSON data, most of which you didn't care about. So over time, I learned about some interesting command line tools. There's Gron, G-R-O-N, which takes an input JSON and outputs basically the JavaScript that would construct that with the idea that then you can grep that thing. So it's for greppable JSON. Mm-hmm. And then FZF, the fuzzy finder, which is great for if you have a lot of text, you can type and it has a very simple way of interactively showing you and narrowing down what you are seeing. So our typical cycle was, oh, we're not showing the right status for this group of items within this order. And it would start by going and getting the data that we start with from order services, and then poking around inside that gigantic blob of JSON to find the things we cared about. So I ended up writing a command that would basically create a shell command that would call curl to get the data and pass it through Gron and then pass it to FZF and with all the necessary command line options so it looked pretty and would pop right up. And I would show this to other people, like on other teams who had the same problems we did, and was like, and this is how I get, I find out this information so quickly. And they were like, can we get this? And I was like, do you want to install Joker? <laughs> and if that didn't say, didn't phase them, they were, people were very happy to have that tool, especially yeah. people in the QA groups. And it was not much code at all. It doesn't, a useful tool doesn't have to be gigantic. It just has to be that well-worn knife or that pliers with the perfect fit. Mm-hmm. Or the little script that just puts things together so you don't have to remember how to do it every single time. And so, yeah, that was probably my favorite. But I wrote a bunch of, of similar tools for talking to different systems or grabbing data out of logs or running Splunk queries for me or a bunch of stuff like that. Anything that was like tedious and hard to remember. And now I'm doing similar ideas. A lot of it's about setting up data on EC2 or copying projects over and executing closure code on this other machine or doing a bunch of other things for me. That's what I'm writing tools to do. That's a lot of what I've spent my time doing since I started here. 
do you write a lot of these tools like while you're in the process of doing the work or are you ideas hit you and then at the end of after the work day you have to write start writing something because you got the idea or how does that workflow work for you in this case i kind of took a flyer on it saying i will save more time by writing this tool first I had a baseline stuff I'd written for Joker. I adapted and turned into stuff that works in Clojure with Babashka. And then I just started writing the commands to do the stuff for me. Because a lot of it was like really tedious. Like, like I had to write code that would shell into the instance and it would then do a curl to get this really long URL to get the right version to Atomic and download it and unpack it and install it. And I didn't want to have to remember how to do that every single time. So it just made sense to put that into a script. And now it's two words, flow, install Datomic, boom, it takes care of it for me. All the tools that I've been writing, and it's only a handful of them so far, are the same way. Yeah, I could like write it down and put it in a file and cut and paste it to the command line each time, but I just don't want to do that. Do you do much dev work? Like after the end of the workday? Like, do you have any dev hobbies or non-dev hobbies? Well, well, on work hours, if I get really blocked or frustrated doing like what I'm supposed to be working on, that's when I might put some more features into the library I'm working on. There's a, a library underneath this tool that does the command line stuff. So oh, I need a new feature. Like yesterday, I sort of hit my limit on what I was working on. So I added a, did you mean? So when you type flow and then an unrecognized command, it would use a matching algorithm to figure out which word was closest to what you meant to type. That's pretty typical for me. It's like, sometimes I need to switch gears because I'm, I'm just pounding my head into the brick wall. Step back, I can do something else and come back to it. Outside of work hours, I used to have hobbies. There was a time when I had hobbies. I have a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old. I have a house that's currently torn apart because of mold remediation. I've got a lot going on outside, and I don't seem to have room and time for hobbies. But, you know, I've, a lot of the stuff I like to do is stuff that I started doing well before I was married or had kids, and it's primarily asocial things. Like in college, black and white photography, dark room, stuff where you disappear into a closet for like four hours. Well, that's fundamentally incompatible, incompatible with like people knocking on the door. It's like, where are you? Can you fix this light bulb for me? It's like, no, I'm in a dark room. That's not going to happen. And a lot of my other things that I've been interested in either learning about or pursuing or just trying once just for a lark, everything from like, I do still do photography, still do a little bit of time-lapse photography, which is a lot of fun, but means that you're basically going to sit somewhere for eight hours while your camera clicks every 30 seconds. These are things that are not compatible with being a partner to your wife and helping to raise your kids. So hobbies are a little bit limited. On the other hand, I have found a little bit of time to dabble with, say, Godot, which is a game development environment. And I've been doing tutorials and trying to build a few simple things there. That's a lot of fun. And it might be something my daughter, who's nine, but shows some, some programming acumen in Scratch, she might be interested in someday. So that's perfect. I can put it under both columns. <laughs> that sounds like a, a good way to dovetail back into uh, to your uh, current interests. Recently, when you've done photography, have you been doing film photography or have you gotten into digital time lapse and things like that? I gave up on film a long time ago. Yeah. And, and of course, I haven't really had proper access to a darkroom for a long time. I kind of miss that. I miss the idea that you're going to have a limited number of shots and you're going to just live with those shots for a couple of hours. With digital photography, it's so easy. It's just click, click, click. You have too many options. You look at them, you're like, this is the best one. Okay, I'm going to adjust this in, in Lightroom and send it to family on Facebook or upload it to Flickr or something like that. And then I'm done. Move on to the next one. I have so many. I'm taking so many pictures that I can't spend much time on any one of them. I have to spend so much time looking and culling and editing and improving and fixing and removing blemishes and turning it into a nice image. But yeah, your question was, when did I transition away from film? And I think I got my first digital SLR, oh, probably 2004, 2005. You know, at 2001, I had, I had been seeing some people who had switched to full digital. It was the guy who wrote Ant, and then he left... Java development to do conferences and photography for conferences. He was saying, yeah, I switched over to digital and you won't believe how fast it will be that it will be all digital. I never expected it to be this quick. 
And he was right. And digital just film is, is an afterthought now. No, no one does film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really expensive now too. If, if you're into it, just, just getting film, let alone the time sink of working that way compared to what you can do with a digital camera. So you said you've been playing with Godot. Like, have you, uh, do you have a concept, a game that you're trying to make, or is this just a, wow, this is really cool. I like playing with this. I think with these kinds of things, if you don't go in with a specific project, you're just going to flounder forever. Right. I have a vision in my head of what I want. Mm -hmm. And because I'm not a game designer and your first few game designs suck no matter what, I was like, what if I found a game that I really loved as a kid that doesn't exist anywhere and re-implement it? And the game I had in mind is a late 80s video game called Ripoff. And if you've ever seen this game, this was from like the early days before it was like, you have three lives represented by hearts, that style of game development. Things were crazier back then. Everyone was trying to figure out what the rules are and what the patterns were. Mm-hmm. And Ripoff had some unique ideas. In the game, you're on the moon or something, and there's some crystals you're protecting like a mother hen. And you've got kind of a space tank that rolls around and shoots. And in twos and threes, bandits come in from off the screen and they grab your crystals, try to drag them back off the screen. And so you need to shoot them, or you can even run into them and blow up. Because when you die, when you're shot or you collide, there's a couple second pause and you roll in. You have infinite lives, but when the last crystal is grabbed, the game's over. So for me, I was like, well, what can we do with modern tech and free images, free assets? And it's like, well, you could do this, but you could do it with a bigger scrolling environment that was a little more visually interesting. You could have fun with lighting. You could have a radar. So because the screen, your playpen is bigger than the screen, you need an indication of what's happening beyond what you can see. You could do more interesting bandits in larger numbers. You could do power-ups and maybe a system where you're collecting some kind of currency and in between waves, you can buy upgrades to your little tank. There's so many things you could do with that. So I got a little ways with this in my first pass, and it kind of has sat, sat unchanged for the better part of a year. And I'm just starting to look at it again and thinking about trying another pass at it. The basic idea is solid. Hey, it turned into an awful lot of quarters and machines back in mm-hmm. the 80s. And it was really fun play-acting game developer. It's sort of like if you go to a supermarket and you do the self-checkout, you're kind of role-playing being like a cashier in a grocery And if you go like apple picking with your kids, you're kind of like role-playing being an iterant worker. So in this way, I'm building this video game and I'm role-playing being a game developer. And it was kind of fun, the idea that you sweat these intensely small details. Like I had an explosion animation. I was like, that's good, but I can tweak this on the animation curve and maybe change the timing really slightly and, and, and the sound effect should be here, not there. It made big, big visual effects, big differences. Tiny, tiny, tiny things are happening in fractions of a second, and you have to make all of those decisions. And that's really cool. Did your first pass end up with something that you felt was a playable game that was close to what you wanted to happen? Or did you just like you go through this exercise and you say, okay, I'm not making it here, but I have way better ideas. I'm going to start over. I was headed that way. And I got to the point where I needed to add like scoring and like a welcome to the game and a you have died screen and maybe a high score list and a few other things and then figure out how to build it so I could give it to people. And that's when I kind of ran out of steam at that time. It was just too much other stuff going on in my life. So didn't get a chance to work on it because, you know, the reality is I have enough time to do a little bit of progress in theory, but I get it is half an hour here or an hour there. But what I need is like six hours all in a row without interruption. Because without that, if you're only getting an hour here or half hour there and you're, you're not confident in your tools and you have this huge amount of stuff to remember that's very specific to this thing that you don't do every day, you don't make any progress. You spend all your time catching up to where you left off and then your time is up. I've been trying to block out a little bit more time to work on, on this stuff so I can actually make some progress. Yeah, I, I assume you haven't found the solution to the... I only get small chunks of time. Here's how I be productive with the with this thing that I know a lot of people struggle with that. I know I struggle with that. What's infuriating is one of the things I watch with my daughter is these game jams where people are given like 48 hours to write a game from nothing. So they're like, sometimes they don't even know what the theme of the game is. Some game jams have a theme. You should look for this stuff on, on YouTube. And some people use Godot and some people use Unity and some people write C. 
<laughs> but they are given the, the idea and the time and they have that amount of time to build a game. And sometimes it's 48 clock hours or sometimes it's 48 hours spread out over a week. But either way, that would, for me, would be about enough time to get the menu working. And they're building like games with interesting animations and ideas and creativity is just both awe-inspiring and sort of belittling to me. It's like I'm looking to rip off someone's game from 40, well, 30 years ago or something. And they're coming up with something completely new under time pressure. Mm -hmm. But it is all about being so versed in your tools that you don't spend any of your time wondering how you do something. They just like are only deciding what to do. And this is the the nine-year-old that you mentioned earlier who was potentially interested in programming who looks up these things? Yep. She's nine and she played around with Scratch a couple of years ago and, and had a lot of fun with that. And we've done a few other game building things that she's into. And right now she's a little bit more into like watching YouTube all the time, which is not as cool. But when we get together, sometimes what we do is we watch those game jam videos. Mm -hmm. And at nine, she's not ready for a programming experience that's keyboard heavy. Scratch is still a better deal at that point. And my 12-year-old probably could do some of this stuff, but has no interest in it. He's much more of an outdoors boy. He wants to be out hip deep in water, catching frogs and doing all this other Tom Sawyer stuff. Not a computer guy. Yeah. And that's great for him. <laughs> well, I think we've come just about to the end of our time here. Thank you very much, Howard. We really appreciate your time here chatting. I hope you had a good time. It's been fun. And... Thanks for giving me the chance. Yep. Thank you very much. You have a good day. Bye. Our host this week was Robert Randolph, who is at Admiral B on Twitter. Episode cover art is by Russ Olson. Audio production is by Bear Cave Audio. The Cognicast is produced by Jarrett Benford and Robert Randolph. The intro music is Crazy G, played by Russ Olson. The outro music is by Nazca at nazcamusic.com. I'm Jared Benford. Please stay safe and healthy out there, and thanks for listening to the Cognicast. Cognicast.